Notice those greetings at the beginning. Greetings of glory and grace, of grace and peace. I wonder if you get any of these cards around this time of year. Get one of these, a few of these. Probably the older you are, the more likely you are to receive these. Um, these are like family updates. This is one from my uh, auntie and uncle in America. I like them, but they're interesting, aren't they? And each of them portraying something slightly different about who they are. You kind of pick up on, on what they want you to know, um, probably more so than what is actually going on in their lives. And often they have the title, Seasons Greetings from relatives and friends, near and far, recounting whatever has gone on in the previous year. Now, the typical formalities in letters that we receive nowadays are really pretty casual. It can be a bit random, and maybe you don't really receive many letters these days unless it's a bill or something. Um, But back in the first century, there were letters and formalities for the first and second century Greco-Roman world would usually include a greeting that said, be joyful, which in Greek is Cairo. And there's a kind of pursuit of happiness kind of feel to it. Joy is to be found if you choose to work at it and to become it. One of my favorite things about the Apostle Paul's letters after he becomes a follower of Jesus is that he stops with that typical formality, Kyrie or Cairo, and replaces it with charis, which means grace. The distinction is unmistakably Christian. Every letter we have of his begins grace and peace. And he does so not to, for, to fulfill a formality at the beginning of a letter, but to make a bold statement about the transformation of life for every Christian. No longer is the goodness and the success of your life built on your hard work, on your tenacity, on your own effort. It says that the cause of joy, the cause of peace, is grace. And it's, it means it's undeserving. It's unmerited favor from God. And the effect of this grace is peace, shalom, wholeness in God. And this peace cannot be understood as anything other than a restoration of God's original design for humanity. That in every generation, grace leads to peace via a new life to the glory of God. A life lived for God leads to inner peace. It frees us from the restlessness or religious expectation or self-worth that is within us. We're trying so hard to achieve what we want ourselves to become, to be, when here it is, the gift from God, this grace that we need. The Apostle Paul wanted to make sure that each time his letter was read, it began with a bold statement, a statement of reversal, a reversal of the ways of the world, a declaration that the true self is not discoverable by our own efforts. 
whether that is religious works or the striving of self-realization. Paul doesn't use his greetings as a formality, but uses it as a tool to leap into the gospel message of grace, to begin the way he means to go on, to declare the whole foundation for his life and what he believes it should be for your life is grace. But where are these origins of glory and grace? How do we get them? How do we find them? How do we get to that point where we're receiving grace? How do we get to that point where we're receiving that peace that is the result of grace? Well, to discover it and to find out a little bit of what it might look like, we need to actually go back to the beginning. It's always a good place to begin, isn't it? It makes sense when you think of it. One of the things we can often miss or forget in our reading of the creation account in Genesis is the comparison going on between images written uh, during a time where the people of God are getting ready to go into Canaan. Moses is concerned about the influence of the nations around and the tribes around, and and he wants to, to make sure that they know who they are in God. And so we have to read it in that context, understand it in that context, so that we can truly understand what is being said. Isn't it interesting, though, that even then, no social media, hardly any social interaction between tribes and nations, there's still a temptation to be influenced by the things going on around us and the cultures around us. Canaanite shrines and temples of that time had a a wooden stone or carving images of their gods at the heart of their temples. And an image was also placed at the center of God's temple, this garden temple, Eden. An image bearing the likeness of Yahweh. As the people listened to the words of Moses, read aloud to the the whole people assembled, they would hear that the one true God had put an image in the very first temple in human history, the Garden of Eden. This wondrous place of worship and intimacy with God that became the prototype for the tabernacle and then Solomon's temple. Moses wrote about its image of Yahweh, the Hebrew God, as the pinnacle of this garden temple. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. At its reading, in that context, I expect people would have gasped. You might have heard the sounds of jaws hitting the floor. The image of God was no dead wood idol, no stone carving to fight their tribe's current interests, but the God of all creation, of all tribes, and he had made all humanity as the pinnacle of his creation to bear his image. At the center of creation was a garden temple, and in the temple were living and breathing image bearers to their God. Adam meaning mankind, Eve meaning womankind. All people are made in the image of God and to the glory of God. 
And that's what the Bible affirms again and again. God's people are made to the praise of his name and are to give themselves to one another. To be set apart for holiness was the mission of Moses and Joshua. Access to intimacy with God was the purpose of the law and the sacrificial system. Worship was the deepest desire of King David. Restoration to God-glorifying life with God was at the heart of the vision given to those prophets who proclaimed the Messiah to come. In Isaiah, we see God declaring, Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's where humanity's meaning lies. That is where each person's value is derived. Our design is to image him and his glory through intimate worship. This is holiness. To be wholly given to worship in the everyday glories of walking with God and working with God. And that work with God is to fill the earth with his glory. That was the work that Adam and Eve were given to do, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth. In the dusty lands of opportunity beyond Eden's boundary, they were to plant Eden-like communities working to the glory of God throughout the earth, to be creative, to work, to serve, to love. And that is really good news. Because it means in the mundane, in the everyday stuff that we do, in your workplace, at home, picking toys up off the floor, we've been doing lots of that this week, that you can glorify God and live out your purpose as a human being. This God of all creation wraps up our purposes in his And we are made to represent him and his interests in the world. And the closer we get to that, the closer we get to what it means to be truly human. To embrace our God-bearing image in worship to the glory of God is to discover not just more of God, but more of me, more of you. In the same way that God created the heavens and the earth, And God made man in his own image. Grace begins with God. I've taken a while to get here. But here it is. Paul, thankful for the gospel partnerships he has with the Philippian believers, says, verse 6, it is God who began the gospel work and that God will complete it. We must not consider grace as an it. As if grace is a single action or a substance to receive, something easy to define and grasp. Christ's single act, which does bring about our justification and means that we can know God and we can be with him forever and ever, is at the heart of grace. But it is not the whole because grace itself is not something given to us by God. The gift of grace is God's free gift of himself. He is grace. It's hidden in him. It's who he is and it overflows from who he is to us. 
It is his character's true form, spontaneously bursting forth from within the Godhead and overflowing into the deathly valleys of our lives with the life-giving power and love that he has. Here's how Mike Reeves puts it. He's principal at Union um, Seminary where uh, Lewis studies. He says this, the word grace is really just a shorthand way of speaking about the personal and loving kindness out of which ultimately God gives himself. It is all God. In his grace, Father, Son, and Spirit initiates while we are still enemies, while we are still far off, condemned, dead in our sins. And he draws near to save through God the Son. He moves in to change us through God the Spirit and then pulls us out towards him, or pulls us towards him, not out towards him, as his children, as God the Father. In other words, Christ affects grace by his mission from heaven to earth as Christ the God-man. The Spirit appropriates it. He initiates and works it out through the transfer, it gives us the transformation that we require by being substituted for us. And in all this, the Father adopts us through the sending of His Son and the pouring out of His Spirit, causing us to join in and cry out in response to His affection towards us, Abba, Father. It's a real living relationship. And it should take us back to Eden. So we can think, ah, God has found a way out of his great love, out of his grace, to give of himself so that we can enter back in even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were the cause of the separation. That is the gospel. Saved and continuing on, not by our own merit or might, but by a free gift of grace as God gives himself so that we might know him, love him, enjoy him to his glory. So what are the origins of glory and grace? Where do I get this from? God. And all we need to do, as Paul and the believers uh, in Philippi have done, is to ask, and he gladly gives. He's been waiting for it. Because his love for you is in him. It's who he is. It's why we can confidently say that he loved us from before the beginning of time. And do you know what that means? It means that this is who you are. Loved. Adored. If God is love, and he's grace, he has come for you, you can perpetually know that you are loved. There is not one moment where you should doubt that you are loved by God. It's who he is. And loved is who you are. John Barclay, once a professor in theology at Glasgow University, puts it like this. Faith is not an alternative human achievement, but a declaration of bankruptcy. 
You're ready to declare yourself bankrupt. A radical and shattering recognition that the only capital that counts in God's economy is the gift of Christ crucified and risen. Faith directed to and centered on Christ recognizes that under the impact of the good news, there is no element of value locatable in the human being. It invests everything in the only capital that counts, Jesus Christ. The source of glory and grace that leads to peace, to shalom, is not within but without. It is God who has given himself to us and to us he has given himself freely. So those are the origins of glory and grace. And this grace is not individualistic. Yes, it is true to say that you are unique. There is no one like you. But we work this out in partnership, as Paul describes it. Gospel partnership in community. And that word gospel should thrill us, it should excite us, it is the hope of the world, it is how the world can be transformed and be given life. Where people are struggling, where there's turmoil, where there's dead religion. Where people don't know where they're at, they don't know who they are. There is grace, this gospel of grace that leads us into a life lived to the glory of God. And it is to be worked out together. We are to share, as verse 7 says, in God's grace. As Paul later describes in verse 27, as a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It is a, a culture of glory and grace that is to form within community, within the church. I don't know what you think about church. But I don't imagine that you think enough that it is the hope of the world. It is. And the reason that it is, is because we come and we receive this grace, which gives us this incredible new life, where we start to discover who we truly are, and we get to invite one another to experience more and more and more of that. We get to discover more of God, and the more we discover of Him, the more we discover of who we truly are, and then we get to invite other people into that. Look around, watch the news. The world needs this. The world needs the church. And it needs communities that are known by their love for one another. And sometimes in the church, we can get so complacent and we can be so influenced by things around us that we forget how wonderful this message is. And we start thinking about the new year and we start thinking about what are we going to do in 2024 and what kind of person do I want to be? And we separate ourselves from the gospel and from the community of the gospel and suddenly we think that we start thinking like the world. And if we're truly honest, I'm not going to get you to raise any hands, but if we're truly honest, a lot of us in this room will have been thinking about all kinds of ways of improving self that are really about the kind of message that the world is giving us and not really this radical, glorious, beautiful, extraordinary message that can transform the whole world. And we need to work out, what, do we want this 
to influence us and to build a culture of grace here in this church and to, to pray that many other churches would become like that too, more and more like that? Or do we want to just kind of be passive and let all these other influences decide who we are? At the, at the beginning of this year, would we recommit and say, no, no, I want to be someone who is partnering in the gospel, like we see here that Paul is doing with these believers in Philippi, who gets that this is truly the hope of the world, and that I can be transformed, become more like Jesus, increase in glory, from one degree of glory to another, and I can be an influence on others and help them to see it too. Paul says we are to long for each other with the affection of Christ. In other words, we have to give ourselves to one another. Sure, we've got to fight for rhythms that mean we are devoted to God and the other relationships he's put as priorities in our lives. But we should take seriously the 100 plus references to one anothering in the New Testament. And that we should look to love one another as a high priority in our lives. Because to display this gospel of glory and grace, we need to be reminded again and again that we are called to love one another. Not even self-care should trump our love for one another. And there are lots of things we can do to build this culture of grace. And at the heart of what Paul is saying here is that we should be prayerful people. We should be people who pray with joy. Why should we be people who pray with joy? Well, it seems to me that Paul assumes the gospel, the good news, so we can pray joyfully for one another, not dependent on circumstance. We can see that in Paul, who is happy, joyful in God, even when he's in prison. And so, if we assume the gospel when we come to pray, I hope that we, when we come to pray in Grace Communities this year, in our once a month uh, prayer meetings together here in this room, and we pray before the service every week, and we pray on Friday mornings, at the, on the first Friday of every month, that we would come and we'd assume joy because of the gospel. We'd be, we'd be able to run in, even if we have had a bad day or a bad week or things aren't going well circumstantially, that actually we would remember the truth of the gospel and be able to encourage one another and come joyfully. It doesn't mean you're always like sparkly happy, yeah, but it, it does mean that you understand that this changes everything for you and that you're going to be okay because what he started in you, he's going to complete. You can come joyful in prayer. And it's also prayer that longs for love. Reminds me of John 17 when Jesus is about to go to be crucified and he takes time to pray for the disciples and for all the other believers. And he prays that they would love one another. He prays that they would know his love and the love of the Father. And we should be praying that. We should be praying for one another that we would continually be kind of stoking the, fi the, the fires in us, would be stoked. That kind of love, that warmth for God 
that warmth for one another should continually be stoked. We should be looking to increasingly work out how is it we love God more and love one another more. But praying, specifically praying that others would, be lo- would understand that, the glory, the wonder of that love. And prayer that longs for one another's holiness to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, as Paul says, to discern what is pure and blameless. Paul is serious about continuing on in grace. We see that elsewhere. He says, foolish Galatians, when they seem to have forgotten that not only are they saved by grace, but they continue on in grace. It's not like you're saved and then suddenly you go, right, now I've got to work really hard to be like Jesus. No, no, like, that's not how it works. You, you are to continually return to God for his strength, for his provision, for his ways of, of coming and increasing in you this love for him and love for one another. That we need more of the grace of God, not just for people to be saved, but for us to become more and more like Jesus, to increase in holiness. So often you can go to a prayer meeting and it kind of just turns into a list, doesn't it? We start praying through long lists of people's ailments and circumstances that have gone wrong. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. But if we do that without praying that that we would become more like Christ in those circumstances. That every moment we would take as an opportunity to bring glory to God, that we would see more of him in the, in the, in the ordinary moments of life, in the hard moments as well as the good moments, that we would be praying for one another to be closer with him, to know him better, to live for him with more conviction, then we've missed it. We should have this desire in us where we have a kind of holy dissatisfaction with our kind of lukewarm approach. When we see that, when we see that there's something in us that's just, I'm just not sure, I'm just not there, uh, we need to pray for one another. We'll all go through that. We'll all go through times of disappointment, disillusionment, doubt. But we must not respond only with sympathy, but to pray, to trust God, to to ask for more of his grace for us so that we might see that change and be transformed more and more so that we can increase in what it looks like to be like Christ in our circumstances. Prayer is at the heart of how we can build this culture of grace. But we also see in, throughout the New Testament all kinds of other ways in which we can do that. It says in Romans that we should outdo one another in honor. How might we honor one another well? We need to be thinking about those things. Maybe it's just honoring someone who's been serving today. Just go say, hey, thanks so much. Thank you for turning up early. I noticed that you come 
really early most weeks and, and come and just serve. And hey, thanks for doing that. Helps us to worship together. It gives us the opportunities to be able to come and hear from God. It could be something as simple as that. It might be just that you notice in someone when they're struggling. You know what? They're an image bearer to the glory of God. They're somebody who's part of this church. And so instead of slagging them off or getting frustrated with them, that we'd speak kindly of them, well of them, honor them. One of the things that we must get into our hearts is the idea of being a welcoming community. And so in a, play, in, a, in a Sunday morning like this, when people arrive, you might come in, people might come in a bit nervous, but like, oh, I don't know what's going on. They might be new. They might be people who uh, have never been to church in their life. There might be people who have been lots and lots before, but actually they struggle a little bit with anxiety. If we really want to love like Christ, if we want to be the type of community that is increasing in holiness, then it can't just be down to a team. That's what would happen in the world. We'd just give it to a team and we'd say, yeah, go for it. Responsibility over to them. But actually in a community like this, we want to be people who are extending grace. In the same way that God gives himself for us, we want to give ourselves for others. And so we see people coming in and we go, okay, I'm going to welcome, I want to go welcome them. I want to welcome them like God has welcomed me. They've not done anything to deserve your friendship yet. Okay? They've not said a good joke. They've not looked cool. Or they don't look like the type who you might want to be friends with great, like God saw you in your muck and came to you and cleaned you up and brought you in. Let's go to them. That's grace. That's a culture of grace. A culture of grace is also to be vulnerable with one another. That's hard in Scotland, isn't it? We find this one tough. Talk about our emotions and everything. But in appropriate places, not saying we have to spill our emotions everywhere, okay? It's going to be messy. But there must be places within our true, honest feelings about things. And that we are honest about our failings. I hope you see that as, as leaders, we try to do that. To be as honest as we can be with our failings. Why? Because we, what we don't want to do is pretend to be something we're not and give you the be something that you're not what do we want to do we want to show you our weakness so that you see that we rely on the grace of god too and i think all of us want to be people who do that who are comfortable increasingly comfortable as they rely on the grace of god and their identity to be set in him and in that grace, that we then feel we are able to go to people and be honest about ourselves, not pretend to be something. And it says to the person that you're vulnerable to, ah, oh, I don't have to pretend. I can be vulnerable. 
and then we receive the grace of God together. Now, what you don't want is just to kind of get all negative and talk yourself down all the time as a kind of false humility. The response then must be, let's turn to Jesus. Let's pray together. Let's get into the word. What does God say about you? That's grace. We need the grace of God again and again and again. There are so many places we could go. I'm going to stop it there. But we really want to build this culture of grace this year as a church. It's not, when we're thinking about 2024, let's work hard not to only think about ourselves, but to think of one another and how it is that we are receiving grace and giving grace and growing in grace. This gospel of glory and grace is the answer to all of our angst, all of our frustration, all of the things within us that make us go, ah. (laughs) If we want the peace of God, we need the grace of God to live a life to the glory of God. That is where you will find yourself, your true self, and be satisfied in him. As Augustine argued, you can't go through a sermon without Augustine being quoted at the moment. The problem is not just that we have done wrong, it's that we have loved wrong. Loved the wrong things, looked for satisfaction in all the wrong places. And he said, our hearts will always be restless until they find a rest in him. That was his experience until he discovered that what he said was sweeter than all pleasure. What's he talking about? The grace of God.